0: From the Cumberland Plateau and the University of the South, this is the Sewanee Review Podcast. This is Spencer Hupp, Assistant Editor for the Sewanee Review. I'm here with Paul Muldoon. Paul is a professor of poetry at Princeton University and served as Oxford Professor of Poetry from 1999 to 2004. He has published 12 full-length collections, including the now classic Horse Latitudes and Meeting the British. His 1994 collection, The Annals of Chile, received that year's T.S. Eliot Prize. Another collection, Moy Sand and Gravel, won the 2003 Pulitzer Prize for Poetry. He has been hailed by the Times Literary Supplement as, quote, the most significant English language poet born since the Second World War. I'll begin with the most difficult question of all. Paul,
1: what's your favorite song? My favorite song, I suppose off the top of my head, is Excitable Boy by Warren Zevon. You know... There are many songs I enjoy listening to, um, of course, from a whole range of um, songwriters, singer-songwriters. But uh, my response to your question, you know, on Twitter, as it were, is Excitable Boy. Came down to dinner in his Sunday best. He's just an excitable boy. And he rubbed the pot roast all over his chest. He's just an excitable boy. Um, He took in the 3 a.m. show in the Clark. Excitable boy, they all said. And he bit the usherette's leg in the dark. He's just an excitable boy. And it goes from bad to worse, of course. And uh, a beautifully simple structure, um, as, of course, is uh, true of so many great songs... And uh, it's a song that, you know, is operating somewhat in the 50s mode with a little bit of a doo-wop chorus in the background. Uh, But, it, you know, it also goes back to the the very basic, what would one say, uh, feel of the ballad tradition. He, after 10 long years, they let him out of the home. Excitable boy, excitable boy. And he dug up her grave and built a cage with her bones. Excitable boy, they all said. Now that's something that you could find quite easily in a child ballad, that kind of image. So um, off the top of my head, that's a song I like a great deal. Now you write your own song lyrics,
0: and they've been collected in a book called Word on the Street. Uh, How does... The pop lyric form or the rock lyric form that you travel so fruitfully in that book and elsewhere compare to the writing of poetry?
1: How are they different? Well, I have to say that um, this may seem strange, but I have a lot... <laughs> I have a lot more fun writing songs. Um, you know, that's not to say that there isn't fun associated with writing poems, but um, I think paradoxically, the writing of song lyrics is more fun, though in in a strange way, it's more difficult. And it's more difficult because when one establishes what the template of a song might be, i.e. the shape of a verse and chorus, say, Mm -hmm. if one's using that format, uh, one pretty much has to replicate that, not absolutely faithfully, but close to faithfully uh, for the duration of the song. And, um, you know, that's not something uh, about which I, uh, I, I'm i usually exercised when I'm writing poems. It's not to say that many of my poems don't replicate from one stanza, say, to another, uh, you know, certain... Um, uh, formal considerations, rhyme patterns, for example, or maybe even within a line, uh, certain um, you know aspects of prosody that would be repeated uh, from one from one stanza to another. but in general, I've more fun writing songs, and uh, I, I suppose that i I think I'm possibly less guarded in a strange way when i'm writing songs i always feel that you know when it's when i'm trying to write a poem i think um, i'm always concerned about at some level about make, making a terrible mistake you know it's almost as if the stakes are higher though i don't know if they necessarily are i don't think anybody much cares actually one way or the other but i suppose that uh, you know, having tried to write poems now for 50 years, which I have, I suppose I feel, you know, I feel that, you know, this needs to be good, otherwise what's the point of doing it? You know, so I have unreal expectations, and I add to my own troubles, I suppose. So you have 50 years of experience <laughs> writing poems. Well, I mean, that's a way of describing experience. I've been trying to write poems for 50 years, but the truth of the matter is, you know, nothing much, one learns nothing much that will be useful from one circumstance to another, really. One of the
0: recurring threads through your career is the way you name certain poems. Mm -hmm. And you'll see what I'm getting at when I read this list. Thrush, hedgehog, mules, beaver, the frog, the fox, cows, beagles the otter, horses, and most recently tortoise. What should I make or what should a reader make of these animal names or these animals that recur in your work?
1: Mm. It's funny. I mean, two or three books ago, I can't remember which one it was, my editor at Forest Rouse and Giroux, Jonathan Goulassi, uh, wrote to me and when I sent him the book, and he said, "It's what a bestiary. And, I mean, it hadn't even occurred to me, honestly... That it was a jury, and when you meant, you're not the first person to have mentioned this, and I think I've always been interested in animals and poems. We are animals ourselves, after all. They are our, we're connected to them. They're very like us. Some of them are more like us than we would like to think. The Pig, for example. I have a poem in which uh, I write about uh, the possibility of donating, of my donating, a heart valve to a pig, because pigs have done so much for us. They're among our closest, what would one say, uh, relatives. Of course, you know, the fruit fly is pretty close to us too, we know that also. But some of the very first poems I wrote were when I sort of got into my Stride, as it were, insofar so far as I ever did, which is not at all, were animal poems. I think I was very influenced by people who were, who were quite excellent in the realm of the animal poem. Uh, Ted Hughes, for example, was a big influence on me. And then so was D.H. Lawrence, and so was Marion Moore, Elizabeth Bishop, the John Donne of the Flea. Uh, I did an anthology a few years ago called The Faber Book of Beasts, and in the introduction to it, I did remark on how somehow animals often bring out the best in us, I, and I think both as people, you know, as citizens and as poets. So I'm just fascinated in uh, by, you know, attempting to, be it an animal, be it any other aspect of life, just connecting and finding finding some new way of thinking about an animal you know so this poem that you mentioned a tortoise and it is a tortoise and that in fact is a kind of fascinating just as you said tortoise it's not tortoise it's not the tortoise it's a tortoise um an indicator of you know how all the, each of these words counts, uh, even the little articles. And in other words, it's kind of like a stab at a tortoise, um, an attempt at a tortoise, and a tortoise that appears in various guises. And one has a, you know, almost a prismatic view of it, kind of t- slightly different depictions of it. And that, of course, is true <clears throat> of how we've. Seen the world substantially since the late 19th century and even in terms of animals, um, you know, how the movement of a horse was broken down by a series of f- photographs. And that, of course, then influenced various um, aspects of the visual arts, nude descending a staircase, and also the written arts, you know, the, the fractured aspect of modernism so I, I don't think of myself well I try not to think of myself at all but I certainly don't think of myself as being a an animal poet quote-unquote you know in the way that Ted Hughes for example or D.H. Lawrence whom I mentioned you know were fa- uh, Marion Marianne Moore were fabulous animal poets but it's certainly something I do among other things. A tortoise Try telling a dramatist the sky's the limit when an eagle has let fall a tortoise onto his bear's gull. Now Aeschylus will expire without the opportunity to develop his skill in single combat or master basic hero feats. However emotionally detached, a tortoise had it within it to be the sound box of a lyre improvised by my friend Joseph in a last-ditch effort to rise above the gulag. Given the Portuguese regained the fortress at Almeida after the Treaty of Paris, it's clear not every outcome is dire. That's why, though the tortoise pretends to browse the chessboard, Its every move's a gambit. A tortoise will put its best foot forward on the bays and strike out across a scum-covered quagmire with all the poise of a high-functioning alcoholic. Yet this same tortoise has covered its ass with its helmet like a grunt in a helicopter gunship coming under fire from that contested ground near the border of Vietnam and Cambodia.
0: Our podcast is recorded in the William Ralston Listening Room, located inside DuPont Library at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. This room is equipped with state-of-the-art audio components and over 30,000 recordings. Classes, listening sessions, and opera screenings are hosted by student curators throughout the school year. To visit or find out more about the Ralston Room, visit their website at library.sawani.edu backslash Ralston. Do you or are you still apprehensive about calling yourself or identifying as a
1: poet in general? You know, I shouldn't be, and I and I should get over that apprehensiveness. Um, I I suppose I don't want to be another person who imagines himself to be a poet, but who's not really. And I think that's why I resist it if that makes any sense to you. You know, when people come up to you and introduce them, I mean. Introduce themselves as poets. I've said this before, I'll say it again. You sort of want to run. Um, and now, having said that, you know, maybe it is time I sort of said, okay, Paul, get a grip, face reality. This is what you do. And it's a perfectly reasonable, th- or attempt to do, a perfectly reasonable thing to do. It's as reasonable a thing to do as be a philosopher or a psychiatrist or a pulmonary specialist. Just get over yourself. It's not about you. You're a poet. If you were introducing
0: yourself at a cocktail party (laughs) and introductions had been made and people were aware of your name, or the receiving party was aware of your name, what would you
1: say next? The attending question being, what do you do? I would still tend to say that I'm a teacher, you know, professor, and I usually would say I try to write poems, and you know, that's it's not a false. It, that seems to be accurate to me. You know, that's that's as much as really one can say. I think because when I sit down to write a, the next poem, I sit down to write. There is absolutely no guarantee that it's going to work. And if I were confident as a pulmonary surgeon, say, there's always always a bit of a risk in there too, of course, but in the poetry business, one doesn't even know that it's a lung one's operating on. It could be a watering can. You don't really know what it is you have to be able to work on until it sort of is coming into being. And that's why I hesitated. It's not false, it's not modesty, it's not false modesty. It's just trying to be factual and trying to be accurate and very conscious, honestly, of the fact. It is a fact. But uh, even poets who have been quite good along the way are highly highly likely to be less than good particularly as they continue i mean i want i don't want to be doing it i just don't want to be doing it i don't want anything to do with it unless it's sort of half decent you know and unfortunately there's it's very hard to to know for one'self in particular if it is half decent it's very hard. And it's very hard for people to tell you that it's not. So I'm just conscious of that. So I hope to try to continue to do it. That curatorial skill
0: in determining what's valuable, what's half decent in poetry, how did you make those judgments as poetry editor for The New Yorker?
1: What was your process and selection there? Process was really quite simple. Anything that struck me as being a remotely interesting was set to one side and if it continued to be remotely or even more than remotely interesting I'm interested in what's interesting be it in a poem um, a a non-fiction book and they tend to be quite interesting by their very nature and that actually is mostly what I read I read a lot of poetry just because it comes to me one way or another Um, I read a a smaller amount of prose fiction. It's just not something I try to keep abreast of, though the writing that has been most important to me in a strange way and influential in many ways has been prose fiction. I mean, by that I mean people like uh, Joyce, of course, and uh, various others, and Beckett, to some extent. You know, a poem generally tells you how good it is. You know, and those descriptions by, um, oh, you know, Emily Dickinson, for example, of, you know, the poem that makes the hair stand up on the, on the back of your neck, basically, or you feel as if you've, the top of your head has been chopped off. There's no countering that. Effective poems, we're not even using the word good here, effective poems do that. And they come in all sorts of different styles, you know. So I suppose one of the responsibilities I felt I had when I was in that particular job at The New Yorker was actually being open to a wide range of poetries, which I think I am, and I think that's why I got that job, actually. I don't belong to any schools. I'm not interested in schools. I abhor schools. Poetry for me can be a squib, you know, it can be a piece of what we think of as light verse, philosophical rumination. Um, it and I'm open. It can be a song lyric. I'm open to all of that. It's, and that's not because I'm such a great guy. That's just because I'm responding to a what I consider to be a fact of the range of ways in which poetry announces itself in the world. That's a great pivot
0: back to your own poetry for us. Uh, which involves my next question. I'm thinking of a poem, like "Hard Drive," which is the first poem in "More oh, Sand yeah. and Gravel," yeah, yeah. which depends on certain place names, Dairy Fubble, Seskinar, etc. Yeah, uh, names which might sound very funny to the American ear for its structure and content. Homesickness makes a refrain out of them. Quote as the sun goes down over Ballynick and Ballymcnab, etc. Yeah. What's going on here? Do these places earn their position on the page from familiarity or from phonetic richness or both? Yeah, where do those come from?
1: Well, you know, uh, just as you say it there, I'm reminded of a poet who was quite influential on me and many others, Uh, a compadre of uh, Robert Frost. And that, of course, was Edward Thomas. And Edward Thomas, um, you know, was a great um, poet of Englishness and is a great um, um, devotee of the English place name. And I suspect I sort of was influenced somewhat by that uh, on one hand. In the Irish tradition, there is, in fact, a whole genre of literature Known as Din Hennechus, the lore of place names, um, which is actually the driving force behind many great uh, Irish texts, you know, having to do with the etymology, often with the etymologies of place names, you know, so that RD in County Meath is the place where uh, Ferdia, the uh, combatant with Coo uh, Holland at the Ford. So in that case, I mean, that was a book... I came to the US in, in 1987, and that was a book that was published round about 2002, that book came out. And, you know, I would I've I think I've been writing a lot of poems set in the US, as always have. Um, and for some reason, that particular book, starting with the title... I just find myself going back to the places that uh, I associate with my, you know, childhood and youth. And those are place names that are, you know, f- from round about where I was brought up and just a little um, delighting in the places. And it may be partly the, the, um, the names of the places, but the meanings of the names are also uh, important, you know. Hard drive. With my back to the wall and a foot in the door and my shoulder to the wheel, I would drive through Seskenor. With an ear to the ground and my neck on the block, I would tend to my wound in Belik and Belnaleg. With a toe in the water and a nose for trouble and an eye to the future, I would drive through Derryfubble and Dunamunna and Balnass Green, keeping that wound green. And that's one of the things that Irish people do. You know, anyone with a grasp of the Irish language or even a kind of half grasp of it, which is what I have. You know, if, you, uh, if you're told about a place name in um, Umgola, Umgola. For example, there's a place named uh, Outside Armagh. And it sounds as if it might be from Kenya or somewhere like that. But actually, um, one knows immediately, I mean, somebody from Cork could tell you that there were certain geographical features associated with that place. The word Gola or Gaula is a word for a fork. And the word amara um, is the word for a ridge a ridge on land. Um, So, you know, the place names are often, often, not always, associated with physical features. So it's landscape informs
0: names, but names can also form landscape in the imagination. They're words, after all. Mm -hmm. That's often how some of your poems operate. Is that you come to words, and they reflexively work
1: on every word that's come before them? Is that fair to say? Uh, possibly. When you say reflexively, how do you mean? I mean they. Do you mean within one poem? Yes. Yeah. I mean, every. Yeah. I mean, I am a person who thinks about every word in the poem. I'm sure most poets do. Actually, I'm sure many poets don't, because you can see that they haven't. I mean, there's nothing so obvious as someone who hasn't, actually. It's sort of staring one in the face, and it's all there on one page. All the evidence is there. You know, I try to think, and I encourage my students, for example, to think about the meaning of every word on the page, and I try to do that myself. I don't always succeed, because sometimes I take things for granted that I shouldn't. And I take for granted that I know something which, in fact, I don't. So one can never be too uh, careful, as it were. And even when we, one is careful, one misses things. So part of the job of being a, 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 a versifier, a poet—the term we usually use—being a versifier is being uh, is keeping an, keeping uh, keeping one's wits about one. You know, promises, promises. I am stretched out under the lean-to of an old tobacco shed on a farm in North Carolina. A cardinal sings from the dogwood for the love of marijuana. His song goes over my head. There is such splendor in the grass. I might be the picture of happiness. Yet I am utterly bereft of the low hills, the open-ended sky, the wave upon wave of pasture rolling in and just as surely falling short of my bare feet. Whatever is passing is passing me by. I am with Raleigh near the Atlantic where we have built a stockade around our little colony. Give him his scallop-shell of quiet, his staff of faith to walk upon, his scrip of joy, immortal diet, we are some eighty souls on whom Raleigh will hoist his sails. He will return years afterwards to wonder where and why we might have altogether disappeared, only to glimpse us here and there as one fair strand in her brain, the blue in an Indian girl's dead eye. I am stretched out under the lean to of an old tobacco shed on a farm in North Carolina when someone or other, warm, naked, stirs within my own skeleton and stands on tiptoe to look out over the horizon, through the zones, across the ocean. The cardinal sings from a red bud. For the love of one slender and shy. The flight after flight of stairs To her room in bayswater. The damson freckle on her throat That I kissed when we kissed goodbye. Thank you for
0: listening to the Swanee Review Podcast. If you like what you heard, the best way to support the Swanee Review America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly is by purchasing a print and online subscription at www.theswanereview.com. To discover what's happening at the review, visit our website or follow us on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages at The Swanee Review. Special thanks to our producer, Helen Y. and sound engineer, Alex Martin, with music by Annie Bowers. Until next time, this is The Swanee Review, new since 1892.